This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Wildcatters? It's Jake Corley here with Digital Wildcatters and want to give you guys a quick update. Six years ago, Colin and I came up with the idea of bringing a South by Southwest style event of energy to Houston. And this October, we're manifesting this dream into reality. Is it a crazy idea? Absolutely. Because our mission of Fuse is to bring together the builders and the innovators in energy that are transforming how we produce, distribute, and store energy. But in order to do that, we have to bring together all subsectors of energy, oil and gas, renewables, hydrogen, nuclear, geothermal, utilities, and battery technology. This is unlike anything the world has ever seen before. And on top of that, we're taking over five city blocks in East downtown Houston, four stages with three content tracks, seven venues, and expecting north of 2,000 attendees. If you're looking to showcase your technology, we've got expo space for about 100 companies, as well as the opportunity to demo your tech live on stage. Come join us October 26th and 27th here in Houston to experience more opportunities for networking, learning, brainstorming, and career-changing connections than ever before at Fuse 22. Tickets are now on sale at digitalwildcatters.com forward slash Fuse, F-U-Z. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Service Podcast. We've got, I mean, this man needs no introduction. We've got Bobby Tudor, founder, CEO of Tudor Pickering Holton Company for, I mean, how long were you guys around? Like a uh, billion six, years? Six, 16 years. 16 years, years yeah. man. Yeah. And yeah. now you've moved on to... I don't know if I want to call it greener pastures yet because we haven't heard about it. Well, I'm calling it my sabbatical year <laughs> is, is what I'm calling it, actually. But I started a little entity called Artemis Energy Partners, and it's it's really kind of my platform for all things uh, investing related and yeah. and uh, and also energy transition uh, mm-hmm. related, where I'm really active, sort of across the board. You're a busy guy. You got, yeah. a, you got a lot of, yeah. lot of, lot of hands way. and a lot of things. Yeah. In a good way. But, you know, I'll make time for fun, too. So and then it's, it's, also, not, it's not all work. Also, you play a critical <laughs> part at Goodyear Houston Partnership as well with the energy transition initiative that they have over there. So, yeah, lots lots of things to yep, talk yep, about yep. today. I'm, I'm leading that initiative and um, and having fun doing it. So it's, it's really cool. Awesome. So I want to dive right into backstory. So we've had Dan Pickering on Digital Wildcatters podcast several times. Uh, haven't got Maynard yet, but you know Maynard's a great friend of ours. Maynard's so with Jeeps. I've got, I've got to, I've got to hear the story of TPH <laughs> yeah. um, from their perspective, and would love to hear the 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 origin story from from you. And so let's talk about your career in investment banking and becoming the premier investment bank in, in oil and gas. You know. What, how did you get into investment banking? Well, um, I, look, I I, um, I joined Goldman Sachs out of graduate school uh, and sort of tumbled my way into the energy part of the investment banking business by mistake. You know, as as often happens, I was I was a young guy in the New York office, and they were looking to staff someone on the IPO of Santa Fe Energy. Uh, and, and back in those days, there wasn't a huge amount of specialization. Sort of everyone in investment banking was a generalist, more or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I was a young guy f- from Texas. I'd gone to Rice, and and they knew I was from this part of the world. And and so they needed a young associate on the deal, and they said it's going to be you. And uh, you know, and 37 years later, here I am, uh, an energy investment banker. So I really spent my whole uh, career 
in investment banking in the energy space. I didn't do that exclusively. I did some other stuff as well, but for the most part, I was an energy banker really. And and um, moved to. They asked me to move to Houston. I, I did that. Spent ten years here. Then I moved to London and ran the energy investment banking effort for Goldman Sachs in London. So uh, I had experience kind of all around the world. I knew I wanted the second chapter after after Goldman. Um, it's very rare for for people to stay at at Goldman, you know, more than twenty years or something like that. That's what I was there, uh, and but I was still a young guy. I was twenty years in, and I was a young guy, and I wanted a second chapter. And, and I had a view that there was the investment banking world was changing, particularly as it regarded energy, and was headed towards a much more specialized, technically deep sort mm-hmm. of mandate where it's no longer enough to you know wave your arms, do some discounted cash flow analysis and come up with a valuation. You know, at the end of the day, you, you needed to have a deeper understanding of the business. And so my idea was to, was to build a firm, uh, around that. Uh, and I went down the road actually trying to buy an extant firm, couldn't make that happen. And I had a, uh, a client and friend who said, do you know Dan Pickering? Uh, and, uh, I said, no, not really. You know, I've heard of him. He said, well, he started this little research boutique. It's very cool, but he's trying to decide what to do with it, kind of where to go with it. Y'all should meet. So uh, I went to see Dan. Uh, this was kind of, I don't know, Thanksgiving of 06. Uh, and I just left Goldman in April uh, of, of 06 or something like that. I went to see Dan and uh, and said, "Hey Dan, I, you know, I'm I'm looking to kind of build a first rate energy focused investment bank." And he said, "Well, so am I." <laughs> uh, and uh, I said, "Well, you know research, I know investment banking. Why don't we combine forces here and try to, you know, build something cool and interesting?" And and uh, we kind of ticked through how we viewed the opportunity, how we viewed the world, found out we were really aligned. Uh, and, but it was going to take some more capital to really build out, uh, an investment banking platform. And I had the capital, Dan already had a really good research platform. And so had kind of something to start with and work with. So, um, we joined, we joined forces in, uh, kind of new years of new year, uh, 07, uh, February 07. And, uh, and then I set about kind of building the investment banking, uh, portion of that and, uh, Maynard, joined us kind of end of that calendar year. So December, uh, how'd, how'd you guys link up Jody? Well, well Maynard, Maynard and I uh, knew each other well, having worked at Goldman Sachs together. Okay. And, uh, Maynard was, uh, you, you guys know Maynard's very, <laughs> uh, kind of unique, uh, awesome character. Uh, and, but came at it very much from the investment banking point yeah. of view. Um, and had great relationships, particularly in the upstream sector. And I just thought it'd be a fantastic partner. He's going to bring, bring a lot of energy and unconventional thinking and, uh, culture, you know, yeah. I, I was very, very focused on the kind of culture we wanted to build there, and I felt Maynard would be really a great anchor mm-hmm. uh, to that culture, and he certainly, he certainly was. So anyway, um, he, I had hired a handful of other guys uh, before before Maynard joined. Chad Michael, who's now leading the business now that mm-hmm. Maynard and Dan and I have all moved on. Uh, Chad was was kind of my early, my first banking hire, uh, if you will. Ali Pruner was our CFO. You guys might know Ali. Um, and uh, hired Lance Gillen, Ed Gay, and you know a whole range of people. Um, so we grew really, really quickly. And look, better lucky than good, right? We caught the wave of the shale revolution. Yeah. Well, I was going to say um, the timing because timing you guys was started great. this in 2007, and so down there's downturn there, which I'd be interesting. Yeah. Uh, interested to hear how that might have affected you guys. 
but then also just a couple of years before the shale wave as well. Which right. Was- so uh, the financial crisis of 07, 08 was great for us because we were just getting started. We had enough money. Uh, we weren't going to go out of business. Uh, yet we didn't have huge GNA. Mm-hmm. And we were uh, we were focused on kind of small victories. And the financial crisis really damaged our competitors, right? If you were, if you were a young banker working at Goldman Sachs or Deutsche Bank or Morgan Stanley or you name it, you were scared to death, right? Because yeah. the whole financial world was imploding. We weren't. Like we were mm-hmm. this young little, we were the digital wildcatters. Yeah. Of, <laughs> you know, the digital wildcatters of, of 2007. And so uh, we just kind of put our heads down. And one interesting thing that was happening during the financial crisis uh, was the shale revolution. It was kind of all happening at the same time. And Dan and research had kind of gotten on the cr- on the front end of that wave and had started to build a real reputation mm-hmm. around being uh, uh, kind of early adopter, if you will, of the importance of, of the unconventional oil and gas business to the future of energy in America. And so he was already out in front of research and we just jumped on that wave on banking and became experts in it. So we, we just knew more about it sooner than most of our competitors mm-hmm. did. And we had put together a first rate team of people and we started winning business and like, mm-hmm. and, and we just had, we had a lot of really quick success um, because there was a ton of activity. And so while the rest of the world was suffering in the financial crisis, we were like, bam, out of the gate hard uh, getting, getting stuff done. And so we, we, uh, we got very lucky, you know, we, it's just much easier to do that when the wind's at your back, mm-hmm. which uh, because of the shale revolution, the wind was at our back. And, um, and so we built our reputation quickly, got a lot of momentum and, you know, there was a lot of, wow, who are these guys, you know, uh, and, uh, and built a, built a really good business. And, Mm -hmm. and obviously, you know, we added stuff over time. We built an asset management platform, which, which Dan led, uh, and, um, and continue to grow out banking and, you know, opened offices in London and Calgary and, uh, just had a ton of fun doing it. It was just great. You know, it's funny all, all the way around. It's funny about you making the comment of we were the digital wildcatters of 2008 is, uh, you go out to, to Maynard's warehouse and up in one of his conference rooms, he has a picture and it's you Maynard and, and Dan and Maynard always talks about Dan, um, back in those days with his, uh, his morning note and yeah. how innovative yeah. he was with the yeah. content side. Yeah. And Maynard's always like, you know, digital wildcatters, you guys are doing the same thing, just in new yeah. age, uh, formats. And so yeah. you guys actually had a different approach. As we did. Well. Our, our approach was fundamentally different. And what I, what I used to tell our guys is look, if our pitch books look just like the pitch book from credit Suisse or Goldman Sachs, or Morgan Stanley, we're going to lose Yeah, because we, we don't, number one, we don't have balance sheet. So we're not bringing that to the table. Uh, and number two, if we're not adding something distinctive or, or are a lot cheaper then what's the incentive for any client to do business with us instead of, you know, where they were doing business? And the answer was, you know, none. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so we knew we had to be different and distinctive. And so we were very conscious of that uh, early on. And co- I would also say culture played a big part of that. You know, mm-hmm. we, had a, we had a really clear, firm view around not just what we were going to do, but how we were going to do it and how that was going to feel different to our clients. Yeah. And to the people who are working in the in the firm and in the, in the business, and if we did one thing well, we really executed on that. Mm-hmm. On Can you culture, dive into that a little bit? Yeah. Because I mean, you guys built up a brand that everyone in oil and gas knows, and I think 
you hit the nail on the head. If you want to go toe to toe with the Goldman's and the big investment banks, you have to stand out. And I think culture is everything. How did you guys really approach the, the culture uh, topic in TPH? Like what were things that you did that made you stand out from other firms? Well, um, for starters, uh, as I, as I was thinking about starting the firm, I was, uh, I was on a plane and got out a notebook and wrote down what my vision was for the culture of the firm and ultimately for the business of the firm. But it's in, you know, five or six bullet points. Uh, and, uh, it, it was, it's, you know, a lot of people have culture statements. You see it all the time. It's not a crazy, unusual thing to have a culture statement. Yeah. I mean, everybody does. <laughs> I think what was a little unique about ours was uh, it was it didn't sound like an investment bank. It didn't feel like an investment bank. Um, and I was focused on wanting the place to be somewhere where for the people who were working there, it was it was about more than just money. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people are drawn to investment banking as a, as a career because it can be highly lucrative. If, you, if you're good at it, you know, it's hard to get better current compensation anywhere. Yeah, I always get jealous than, of some of my get, friends that are investment uh, banking. Without, like, well, unless you're taking a bunch of capital risk, right? If you're yeah. taking a bunch of capital risk, it's, it's one thing. If you're an investment banker, you're not taking capital risk. You're just getting paid yeah. a hell of a lot for being good at what you do, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, but consequently, a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's, it's just about that. You know, it's it's about the the money, and so one of the things you see in investment banking is there there tend not to be a ton of really long careers. People kind of cycle in and out of it. The lifestyle can be a little hard to hard to bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you're just in it for money, you're not going to survive over the long haul, and the and the culture of the place won't really hold together because your people are just kind of constantly cycling in and out. So we want it to be about more than than money. Uh, and so we, we wanted to build a culture that was really attractive to people where they mm-hmm. said, you know what, working there is just going to be really different from working at JP Morgan. Mm-hmm. It, it's just everything about it's going to be different. Yeah. Right? <coughs> Excuse me. And so what does that mean? Well, culture at the end of the day is really how you treat people. If I'm going to boil it down to one thing, it's about how you treat people. Yeah, <laughs> right? I agree. And and uh, we and that and that's in everything you do. It's in the way you recruit. It's in the way you compensate. It's in you know the the way you interact with each other. It's the way you give reviews. It's uh, it's you know how you treat someone who's having a hard time. Mm-hmm. It's you know how do you let go of people when it's not working out. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's all of, you know, it's all of those things and there's not, there's not magic to it, right? It's, you know, may, may just say, just be a normal human being, <laughs> you know, like it, <laughs> just don't be a wall street asshole. Yeah. Um, and I think there's some real, there's some real truth to that, but there's also, there's also nuance, you know, mm-hmm. ar- around it. Um, and you know, the, the, the first, the first bullet point says, love your clients. Without them, we're not in business. Most now, most investment banks say serve your clients, be focused on your clients, be client oriented. Well, that's different from love your clients, right? That that's different from being really kind of connected to them in in an emotional mm-hmm. uh, way. Uh, and and that you know people got that right. And so you know the the really measuring stick for us used to be. 
we'd ask a client, tell us if working with us feels different from working with your other investment bank. Um, and I, I think most of the time they would say, yeah, it does. So, somehow it does. It's just different. There's right? just something that There's just different. something there. Yeah. The, the way your people respond to us, uh, the ownership that they take, how they treat each other, how they treat our people, how they treat our receptionist, how they treat, you know, it's just different. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we, we really did, you know, build that. And part of it is you got to live it from the top down, mm -hmm. right? You, you know, people take their cues from, from the leaders of the business. Well, I was so, actually about to say that, sorry to interrupt you, but I mean, this, you can see how it was driven top down. I mean, you talked to Dan, you talked to Maynard, I mean, genuinely good people. I've always said the creativity from Dan and Maynard, they're both very creative people, which not talking down on anyone in investment banking, but it's traditionally yeah. just not a creative place, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and so I could see, you know, just between you three driving that, that yeah. top down. Yeah. And, and so you, you got to live it at the leadership level. But I also used to say at our Christmas party, I used to say, you know what? Culture happens in the cubes. And what I mean by that, it's actually the youngest people who, who, because they're more of them, <laughs> number one, and number two, they're doing so much of the work and they're the ones there at two in the morning. I ain't there at two in the morning, right? They're, yeah. they're the ones there at two yeah. in the morning. You know, so they've got to live that, yeah. right? And so the tone has to be set at the top. They've got to live it. And then we've got to, as leaders, enforce it. What behavior do you reward and what behavior do you punish? Yeah. Those two things really matter, right? When you're, when you're setting culture and, uh, and, and so we were careful about that. Right. And, and about the signals that got sent around that. And you just didn't treat other people badly at our firm. Like that, that will get you fired. Yeah. Like yeah. being an asshole and patronizing people and not respecting them and talking down to them and bullying them and like, I'll get you fired. Yeah. And now in general, those kind of people, we managed to avoid hiring for the, for the, <laughs> yeah. for the most part. That's right? the easiest so part. Trying to avoid hiring the A big part of it, is, a big part of it is being really focused on who you hire. Now look, yeah. you're never going to get it all right. And we were growing really fast. And I, I have a friend who used to tell me, and he's in the financial service as well. If you can get three out of your five, three out of five hires, right. You're doing pretty well. I think we got kind of four out of five, right. Mm -hmm. Not everyone. Uh, and sometimes it just didn't work and, you know, it wasn't a good fit and we made mistakes, but we, we were careful about it. And part of the reason we were careful about it is we had intense involvement in that from me, Dan and Maynard and mm -hmm. our other senior people from Allie and Dave Purcell and, and uh, Chad Michael and Lance Gilliland and Ed Gay and, uh, you know, David Cunningham, all our, like we had intense involvement by our senior people in, uh, in hiring. Uh, and I think that made a difference too. Yeah. So anyway, we just... We worried about our culture all the time. We talked about our culture all the time. If something was countercultural, we wanted to snuff it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and we wanted to model the sort of behavior that, that we wanted from our people. Yeah. And, uh, and we got it. And I think Jake and I can actually testify to y'all's culture. So you probably don't know this, Bobby, but uh, TPH was actually like one of our first supporters and believers. And I think that was really driven down or driven by some of the junior people at TPH, like Deanna, Deanna, John just, Gibson, yeah, Rob yeah. King. Yeah. yeah like and so the I whole mean, tech side. yeah, before digital wildcatters was even a thing, we were just the oil and gas startups podcasts and, yeah. you know, 
we're sitting in TPH's office, which I just thought was cool as shit. Yeah. And uh, I think it's well, very likely <laughs> without that support, like at, oh, yeah, we that, wouldn't oh, exist. I, 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 I was, I was getting you. to this in 2020. I mean, more than half of our revenue came through a sponsorship from TPH. And then everyone knows 2020 was a tough year yeah. to start a business. And yeah. that yeah. probably is yeah. the only reason that we're alive today. So well, look, Jake we, and I have an know, appreciation for TPH. We, uh, <laughs> we honor creativity and risk-taking, right? And, and the fact of the matter is when you're taking risk, sometimes it doesn't work out, right? And you, you, you can't punish people when taking risk and trying new stuff doesn't work out. You have to actually encourage it. Now, you have to stop doing it, right? Yeah. <laughs> if it's not working out, yeah. you know, that's part of being a disciplined business person. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't encourage that creativity, um, then you're not going to get it, you know? Yeah. And, and it's very easy in the investment banking world. You know, it's funny by nature, vast majority of investment bankers are not real risk takers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If they were real risk takers, they'd, they'd have started a business, they'd put capital at risk, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's not what these guys are doing. Right? <laughs> right? Uh, they're, they're basically gearhead, you know, yeah. finance types yeah. who don't want to take risks, just want to get paid a lot for what they're good at. Yeah. Uh, and and so it doesn't tend to attract those type of personalities. Uh, and so we need to we needed to infuse the place with that. Yeah. And Dan Dan and Maynard both, you guys know them well, are both really highly creative kind of unconventional guys, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm a more conventional type really than, yeah. than those two are. And I think the three of us as a combination, it really, really worked well. You know, yeah. I was bringing things to the table that they weren't yeah. and they were bringing things to the table that I weren't, but we really liked and respected each other and importantly, completely trusted each other, like hundred percent complete trust. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I, I tell people that Maynard and I uh, in particular worked in investment banking together for 25 years, you know, 10 at Goldman and then, and then 15 plus at TPH, we never had a single disagreement around how to treat a client issue. Not one in That's 25 crazy. years. Like yeah. we, we, we saw things the same way and client issues are, can be difficult conflicts, you know, business selection, uh, delivering bad news. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of really tricky and that's what, you know, that, that's what really good senior investment bankers do. They, they manage client relationships uh, in a way that, that clients want to continue doing business with them. And Maynard and I saw that exactly the same way. And, and that really helped. And, you know, now I laugh as a, yeah, I would argue about whether we really needed another ice sculpture or, <laughs> you know, those are the kind of things we, we argued about. We never argued about a client issue. Yeah. Like not once, not ever. The, not the stuff that really mattered. The you stuff were that aligned. really mattered. Yeah. We, were so, we were so completely uh, aligned. So anyway, it was just a great experience you yeah. know, all the way around. And, um, and these yeah, so let's talk about mentions. the close, like the closing of the TPH chapter. Now that you, Dan yeah. and Maynard have all kind of like moved yeah. on, yeah. you know, Maynard's gone on and now has launched Veritin. Dan obviously has Pickering Energy Partners, which yeah. is kind of like a reboot 2.0. Yeah. And now you've got Artemis Energy Partners and yeah. a million things that you're involved in. Yeah. Let's dive yeah. into that. Yeah. What is Artemis? So uh, Artemis, um, is a cool name that I liked. <laughs> All right, so we'll, we'll start with you that. You got to use it. Step <laughs> on. Yeah. Like, I just I was yeah. like, why Artemis like the name? And partly because I couldn't use my name again. You know, part yeah. of the deal with Perella Weinberg Partners was was they bought my name. Yeah. Effectively <laughs> for, for all things energy investment finance uh, related. Um, and uh, so I wanted to create just a little platform for the things that I'm doing. And, and right now I'm primarily doing two things. I'm leading the Houston Energy Transition Initiative for the Greater Houston Partnership. 
uh, and I'm doing a, a bunch of energy related investing, just kind of family office investing. So no outside money is just yeah. me. Sometimes I'll do it alongside a friend, uh, and we're looking at and doing things. Um, a lot of it is, uh, so I would say my, my sweet spot is anything energy transition related that really involves the incumbent oil and gas industry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of it. It's actually most of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. You know, uh, and, and I feel like that's the world where I really do bring something, you know, distinctive to the table and I understand it best. So I can get, you know, most comfortable investing in that space. And so I'll continue to, you know, I'll continue to do that. And, uh, I'm very active, uh, uh, leading this heady thing, uh, for the partnership. And I'm happy to talk, talk more about that, but, but involved involved generally in all things energy transition related a lot like 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 Maynard is at Veritan a lot yeah. like Dan is at at uh, at his firm you know I was with Dan yesterday and and uh, we were saying in a lot of ways right now feels kind of similar to 0708 yeah right the business is changing there's a wave coming you want to you know be out in front of it but at the same time sometimes pioneers get their wagons burned yeah. you know i mean it, yeah. it's it's easy to lose a bunch of money yeah. too, you know, in, in this environment. So let's dive into that. I mean, you've had, you've essentially had a really successful career at Goldman. You've had a second successful career at TPH. Why is it important for you to get involved in the energy transition stuff now? Well, um, you know, when I gave my big speech to the partnership, one line that I, uh, around this whole topic, one, one line that I used is that we have both as an incumbent industry, we have both a responsibility and an opportunity yeah. around all of this. And I really do believe that to be true. So part, part of my engagement here is public service, mm -hmm. right? It's, we have a responsibility. Um, and that's not because it, sometimes people read that wrong. Sometimes people say, well, yeah, it's because, you know, the oil and gas business has been selling cigarettes to children and you need to reform your ways, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> actually the oil and gas business has, tremendous social utility. That's, that's not what this is about, but we also have a problem. And the problem is that our CO2 emissions are too high and it's impacting the climate and we need to drive them down. Uh, but we also need to continue to provide reliable and affordable energy to people around the world today. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the challenge is truly a dual challenge and um, those challenges aren't going to be met without the incumbent industry, but they're also not going to be met unless the incumbent industry decides it's got a really important role to play in, in, in doing that. And so I feel like, uh, if anything, I, I've been able to lend a voice uh, to that and, and to uh, encouraging the incumbent industry to uh, really kind of lean into it and, and be, you know, be a partner in making yep. that happen. Um, and I think with, with good success, I, I've also was just, I'm just focused on Houston. You know, I'm a Houston guy. I love Houston. <laughs> I'm very um, engaged in a whole wide range of things in Houston and, and a desire to just make it a better place to live for all yep. of our citizens. And um, we got to get this right. Like it is really, really important to the future of Houston and all of our institutions, whether it's you know, education or philanthropic institutions or the arts or our social services agencies, you, you name it. It is really, really important that we don't look up 10 years from now and look like, you know, Detroit 
mm-hmm. or or Charleston, West Virginia, the world cap, you know, the capital of coal. Well, yeah. you know, if if we don't, you know, get out in front of this, uh, that could happen to us. The flip side is there is no better place in the world uh, to be really engaged in the issues of energy transition than Houston, Texas, because you know what? That transition ain't going to happen without us. It's facts. Mm-hmm. It is just it. And, uh, because, because the, the expertise, the understanding, the science, the infrastructure, the companies who can make a difference are here. Yep. Right. And, and that's not to say they're not any place else because they are other places, uh, too. And, and this is not just a Houston issue. It's a global issue. But but maintaining our leadership position as the energy capital of the world is really important to Houston. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I, I have a role to play in, in helping to make that happen, too. So that's that's why I'm really engaged. We love that. I mean, yeah. that falls in line with our way of believing. I mean, I've been in Houston for eight years now, and I'm so bullish on this city. I think that, you know, cities all around the world want to become tech hubs. But Houston has this very distinct potential to become the energy tech hub and leverage the most technical workforce in the world yeah. in oil and gas to solve today's right. and tomorrow's energy problems. And so for us, that's been very important too, is really being the bridge between traditional energy and, and new energy. And look, you know, renewables, uh, nuclear, geothermal, hydrogen, I get excited about all of it because yeah. I see problems and challenges right. and the opportunity right. to go solve those problems and challenges. Right. And you start bringing all of that together. And I mean, we've seen this. I mean, we're friends with uh, climate tech founders and like, yeah, we want to set up an office in Houston to really leverage yeah. the workforce that's yeah. there. And I so- think the cool thing, one of the cool things that's happened just really in the last year, maybe last 18 months, and you guys have been on the front lines of this, but I think the kind of climate tech world is kind of waking up to Houston a bit. Uh, and in part, they're being pulled to it <laughs> because ultimately they need to run pilots Yep. They need customers. They need to get behind fences, right, in big industrial complexes. They need a friendly kind of startup community. They need access to smart, young, technically trained people, chemical engineers, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they start looking around. They say, "Well, where's the best place for all that?" Mm-hmm. Uh, Houston. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I think I think the world is kind of waking up to it, and I think Houston is waking up to it. You know, yeah. part of it is. We needed to stir the pot here in Houston a bit to say, okay, come on, guys, you know, let's let's get our act together, mm-hmm. um, and and really, you know, try to make this happen. And that's the role for the partnership. You know, part, the partnership, Greater Houston Partnership, is an economic development organization. That's what it does. Uh, and so we've set up this heady thing within the partnership to really be the catalyst to to help make a lot of that happen. I, I really do believe that the the problems here are ultimately going to get solved by the private sector. That's not to say that there's not an important role for uh, for the public sector and, and government to play in all this, because there is, both on the policy front mm-hmm. and on the R&D front, mm-hmm. I think particularly on the R&D front, yeah. uh, honestly. Um, but, um, you know, these are big, big, complicated challenges that merge science and economics, right? And and so the, the solutions are going to ultimately need to be economic solutions, and those are going to get solved in companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, a lot happening. It's very cool, very fun. I'm I'm really thrilled to be engaged in it. It also it also kind of brings together another primary interest of mine, which is higher education and and the role of universities mm-hmm. in all of this stuff. 
And, uh, and we have a big, once again, like a lot of other things in Houston, we have some strategic advantages here, which is that our universities, uh, Rice and U of H, but also A&M and UT, uh, bring a lot to the table in this space, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's in chemistry and material science or data science or policy or you name it, yeah. we got tremendous assets. And so one of the things we've been after at Hetty is really kind of pulling those institutions together as a group to say, okay, guys, we're all in this together. Let's coordinate. Let's take your strengths and your strengths and your strengths and your strengths, pull them together and and go after solving some of these big problems, whether it's uh, whether it's, you know, in research or innovation and entrepreneurship or, you know, policy advocacy, you name it. Yeah. A lot of, lot of places for higher education institutions to make a difference in, in solving this. Uh, and that's, that's fun for me too, because mm-hmm. I, I kind of come from that world also. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting, you know, especially about, I haven't met everyone at the Energy Transition Initiative within GHP, but I've met Jane and I think Jane is amazing. Yeah. And, she's great. Yeah. And her background from BP, but also understanding what needs to happen to enable tech startups to be able to succeed just because she saw something, you know, the bureaucracy within big yeah. uh, corporations that kind of slow that down. Uh, right. I just got Caroline over from Texoga that's coming yeah. over. And mm-hmm. so you have people um, from oil and gas that are also forward thinking and, Hey, how do we create, create yeah. this bridge? And, you know, I'm sure people could listen to me talk or listen to you talk like, Oh, well, you know, you've made a career in oil and gas and now, you know, you're, you're selling out to, right. you know, the, the green energy transition. And that's not the way I see it at all. Actually, for me, I think the most exciting nexus is at, um, sustainability and oil and gas technology. Yeah. I mean, because some of these solutions improve not only sustainability, but economics as well. So right. in my opinion, superior, economics and technology win at the it's end of the truly day. Sustainable, so yeah. If you look at the technology that can be deployed into oil and gas today to clean up emissions, yep. I mean, yep. that's exciting. And look, you know, one of the things we've really learned in, in Hetty, and probably should be no surprise, but every company comes at this from a slightly different place, right? Um, which is to say, depends on their balance sheet, depends on their who their owners are, depends what their core competency is. Uh, it it uh, depends on kind of what their money runway is, you you name it, right? Uh, uh, and so we're not going around advocating that, you know, a, a upstream oil and gas company needs to dramatically change their business model and do something fundamentally different. Or, you know, a, a, a well completions firm needs to give up doing well completions in oil and gas and do only geothermal. You know what I mean? Like, that's not where we're coming from mm. at all. Because we've got a dual challenge here, as I said, right? We need to drive down CO2 emissions, but we also have to provide reliable, affordable energy today mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for the world. And so that means people who are really good at producing oil and gas need to continue to be really good at producing oil and gas. Now, they need to do it more cleanly, mm-hmm. and they need to do it more efficiently, and they need to drive down their own emissions footprint. And every company that I talk to is doing that. Like, they're focused on it. Now- they're more focused on it today than they were a year ago yeah, or two years ago. Yeah. And, you know, we can, we can complain all we want about Greta Thornburg and Al Gore and, you know, <laughs> all, all the tree huggers. But the fact of the matter is external pressure has made a difference. Yeah. It, it has gotten the industry, the incumbent oil and gas industry, focused on its own emission footprint. Mm-hmm. Now, look. Uh, it, it only accounts for what seven percent of total global emissions or industrial yeah. emissions or something like that. So yeah. even if it drove them to zero, it wouldn't solve the problem. Yeah. 
but uh, but but people are focused on it, and investors have driven that mm-hmm. too. Public pressure and investors, you know, those, those things have have mattered. And you know, what's been frustrating to the incumbent industry is is to say, okay, we're doing that, we're doing that. Uh, but you guys need to appreciate us for what we're doing also, which is producing oil and gas to keep the lights on and keep the world moving. And, and, you know, they don't feel, and I, and I think probably fairly so that that part of what they're doing is not fully appreciated. I think we're seeing a big shift there over the last four months though, given what's yeah. happening yeah. Uh, with Russia and Ukraine and just yeah, the pendulum is swung yeah, in a, yeah. in a good so, way. Yeah. yeah. And getting a little bit more appreciation for yeah, oil and I gas agree. and the I role agree. that it plays. And, you know, that's the thing I went on a uh, climate change podcast uh, probably about 10 months ago. So before we really got into the thick of the energy crunch and, you know, guys like, well, you know, if the world isn't habitable in, in 20 years. And I was like, you got to balance that with, if we don't have energy today, millions of people die. And <laughs> just like we're seeing food shortages, you right. know, heat waves, right. things right. of that nature. And so balancing that line and, you know, talking to people too, because I talked to him and now I see him on Twitter and he has clearly changed his thinking yeah. since our podcast, just yeah. because I planted a seed and he was able yeah. to start, start yeah. thinking a bit. And yeah. so I think, um, you know, everyone always focuses on the extreme tales of both sides and you got to focus on the middle. Yeah. Most people are reasonable if you yeah. can talk with facts and reason and, and data and just yeah. tell a good story. And so, um, I think that, I think that the world is over the last two to three years, we're seeing the pendulum swing <laughs> to both yeah. sides, kind of extreme, but That's, we're yeah. kind of getting centered. That's where we that. feel like so much of our mission now. I know this all kind of started off as fun and games, two guys at a, and a podcast in a closet, but now it's like our mission has really become to raise the world's energy IQ internally within yep. the industry. Like you said, prior to us recording, uniting all of energy, getting everybody on the same page and kind of taking a pragmatic, more economic approach to how energy should be produced, distributed and stored. Uh, and, and then also externally, all the things that we're talking about in terms of just educating people and, you know, you flick a light switch on, where does it actually come from? Right. Yeah. You talk about oil and gas not actually being appreciated. So there's still a lot, a lot of work that has to be done, but I feel like we we're, we're trending in the right direction. Yeah, I agree with that, but we can't, we can't let that pragmatism uh, soften our sense of urgency around addressing a real yeah. problem. Yep. Right. And so I think that's the key, right? How yeah. do how do you, how do you come up with good pragmatic solutions yet maintain the right sense of urgency around addressing it, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, uh, you know, the, the, those are the competing, <laughs> the competing interest in, <laughs> yeah, for in sure. some degree. Right. For yeah. Sure. So, you know, for you, it sounds like you obviously are a big supporter of Houston and what the city offers and your involvement in GHP. What's the vision for you personally for the city of Houston over, let's call it the next decade. The, I think the biggest issue for us in Houston is that increasingly people don't have to live in Houston to do their job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and therefore, they could live in Austin. They could live in Brenham. They could live in New Orleans. You know, they can live in Sonoma. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, and... And so if we want people to want to live in Houston, we need to continue to upgrade our quality of life issues. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've made great progress in that regard, I think, in the last decade or, or two. Uh, and, and that's everything from transportation infrastructure to uh, public education to parks uh, to 
support of the arts mm-hmm. to our restaurant scene. Yeah, I mean, you know, which is the best in the world. We yeah, say. I think we have the best food it's, scene it's, in the United States. It's great stuff, and that's that's. But you know what? It's very different than it was 15 years ago. Yeah, very different. Yeah, right. And so, um, and so, when I say quality of life, I kind of mean all of that stuff. Yeah. So that people people say, hmm, I want to live in a place that's attractive, friendly, lots to do. Um, and just has a great kind of vibe, yeah. uh, you know, ar- yeah. around it. And in some of those areas, we've got a great head start, right? There's no friendlier place than Houston, right? It's it's so diverse that people of all sorts feel can feel immediately comfortable mm-hmm. here. You know, it's very open, always has been. So mm-hmm. we've kind of got that going for us. Yeah, amazing foundation. Yeah, uh, yeah, but but there's stuff we needed to fix, right? And yeah. so right now, for example, this issue of just constant flooding is it's a problem, yeah. right? If if every time it rains hard, you know, people are swimming out of their homes. <laughs> uh, Jake and I literally have a story. Two years ago, our office was downtown, and just, just a normal day of raining, and we got stranded on I-10 in a flood, and yeah. we were there for yeah. five hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and it's easy to say, "Well, climate change." If y'all would actually admit climate change, I'm like, okay. Well, one day I get in my car to drive home from downtown. I live kind of in the museum district area, and it had started to rain pretty hard. It had been raining probably about 30, 30 minutes, really hard. And I get in my car and start driving up um, Fannin, and the streets just completely flooded. Like I had to pull over in a in a parking lot so that my car wouldn't flood out. I'm like, okay, this ain't climate change. It's been raining for forty five minutes. This is <laughs> this is this is piss poor drainage. Yeah, is yeah. what this is. That's right? what I said. It's not climate change. Uh, we're getting two inches of rain. Right. And we're, yeah, yeah, we're underwater. Exactly. Uh, and so those infrastructure issues are issues, you know, yeah. we, we, we got to deal with. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and another one is walkability of the city. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a, a YouTube video out there that has like tens of millions of views on how Houston has the worst walkability of any city that in the world. That is 100% true. It's like in certain parts of the city, it's like if you're <laughs> – it's the contrast between here and Austin. If you're like walking, it's like, oh, it's because you don't have a car. Right. You know, we're in Austin. It's like, oh, I'm just taking like a nice stroll. But yeah. it's not a place yeah. that you just yeah. walk. I mean, yeah. obviously the humidity probably. Well, no, it's, but it. it's because there's not sidewalks. There's not yeah. bridges. And so yeah. you could have somewhere that's, um, you know, an eighth of a mile away, but it actually takes you, you have to walk around to get, yeah, yeah. To get yeah. there. So, so yeah. we are, look, we are, the good news is we're focused on those issues. Yeah. Right. And, and our whole Bayou Greenways project, I don't know if you guys followed that, yeah. but you know, super cool. Yep. Ma- making, making our bayous effectively, you know, hubs for green space and, yeah. and parks has been a huge success. We, we raised a ton of money around it. The money that's gone into public parks here, uh, it both, both Memorial Park and Herman mm-hmm. Park and many, many others. Um, a lot of support from the private sector to make that stuff uh, happen. And we just need a lot, you know, we need a, a lot more of it. So we're focused on these issues. We're getting better at them. Yeah. Uh, but we got to, we got to ramp it up. A, a big issue is public education. Like if, if we don't have a public education system that works here, it's just going to be very hard to continue to, Let's unpack yeah, that a little right. bit because, I mean, his kids are in school. Mine aren't mm-hmm. yet. They're not really school age yet. Yeah. So walk us through what is the current state of the Houston public school system? So, um, you know, we we have multiple districts. So it's not just HISD. Okay. 
Um, the biggest challenges are in our inner city districts. And mm -hmm. that's, that's, you know, not a lot different from most of the country where, where poverty is, is, uh, is most concentrated. Mm -hmm. Right. So think, think about this one in four Houston families have trouble buying groceries at least once a month. Meaning really? they have trouble having enough money to buy groceries once a month. We have the biggest food bank in America. Wow. Right. And, and so, in HISD, something like 80% of the kids qualify for free lunch. 80%? 80% of the kids, right? So we've got a lot of concentrated poverty and, uh, and, and school in certain neighborhoods and, and good chunks of, of inner city Houston. And the schools that, that service uh, those uh, neighborhoods and kids tend to be of very low quality. Mm -hmm. And and so I'm very engaged with with a group called Good Reason Houston, which is which is focused on, uh, in, in simple terms, creating mo a lot more high quality seats in Houston public schools mm -hmm. uh, by working with the school districts, with the principals, with the superintendents, bringing best practices, you know, advocating for more funding, uh, getting better teachers getting wraparound services to help a lot of these kids who live in such dire poverty, you know, mm -hmm. et cetera. The good news is we do have good public schools in Houston, just not enough of them. Yeah. And, and too, and too many of our neighborhoods uh, and our more economically disadvantaged neighborhoods just don't have good schools servicing them. And we've got to, we've got to make them better. Yeah. Right. The demographics of Houston are changing. Right. And, and we are now a majority Hispanic city and those numbers are going up. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, if you guys have ever uh, had a conversation with Steve Kleinberg, he'd be a really interesting person to have on your podcast, okay, actually. So Steve, Steve is a sociologist at Rice, and he, he for 40 years, has run something called the Houston Area Survey, where, where he basically takes attitudes of Houstonians around a whole range of you know, issues and, and, and asks the same questions uh, over 40 years. Yeah. Uh, and it's really interesting and okay. cool to, yeah. to watch, you know, how things, what's your major concern? Oh, it's crime. No, it's traffic. No, it's schools. No, you know, yeah. and over, over time things, things change, but, but the demographics of, of Houston are, are changing and changing dramatically. And if we don't have public schools that work to, to, to serve these changing demographics, then ultimately, we're going to have a society that's more divided. You know, one, one of the really awesome things about Houston is, is we really have on the whole been well-governed, mm -hmm. you know, in our city and, and county government. And in particular, we've had a, a populace uh, of, of um, business leaders who are engaged with political leaders uh, and other leaders to try to make the place a better place. Mm -hmm. And so there's a real sense in Houston of we're all in this together. Yeah. Right. And we want to make it better and we want to, we want to improve it. And we don't want to have our head in the sand about problems. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to face them, you know, we need to face them, you know, head on and, and make it better. And if we'll, I think if we'll do that, we'll continue to be a place that attracts people. Yeah. Right. If we don't do that and, and the society just becomes more divided uh, and it becomes a zero-sum game where the pie's not growing, the pie's shrinking, and I just need to do whatever I can do to get more of a shrinking pie, then we will degrade 
uh, as a society and a, as an appealing place to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, my, my, uh, my, uh, my, my mother-in-law has now passed away. He used to have a great saying, which is just that all that shit's connected. And, <laughs> and you know, yeah, it is right. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's all connected. And it so is. I'm, I'm focused on helping, helping, you know, find those connections and then kind of rally people in the troops and, everyone to, to address the problems and try to make it a, you know, better and better place to be. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, one thing I like about Houston is the sense of community. Um, you know, I very much bought into this community and hope to, um, you know, part of my philanthropy efforts in the future is dedicated yeah. to things like public education and, and inner cities because Chuck's done a really important. good, good job. Chuck's, this. Yeah, 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 Chuck's, Chuck's, yeah, Chuck's charity, the, um, plays a major, major part in this. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Super bullish on this city over yep. over the next uh, couple of decades. So, Bobby, appreciate you taking the time to come in here. And I mean, your story is fascinating. Um, you know, we've been big fans of TPH. TPH has played an integral part in the success of Digital Wildcatters. So, appreciate you guys. Well, uh, love what you guys are doing. Together, so. uh, you're you're a, you've been a a really good, fun, new, interesting voice in in this whole. And it's funny, we used to call it in this debate. I I actually don't like using the term debate anymore, yeah. right? It's not a it's not a debate in the in the sense that, you know, we know what we need to do, mm-hmm. right? We need to meet the dual challenge of providing affordable, reliable energy to the world, and we need to dramatically drive down CO two emissions globally. There's no debate around that yeah. anymore, really. We we, think we all know we need page. to do that, right? It's just a it's just a question of how we get it done. And to get it done, we need people educated, you know, ultimately on the, the nature of the nature of the challenges. And, uh, and you guys are, are very much doing your part uh, in that. So thank you. Thank you for that. You know, all that shit's connected. All that, that shit's connected. connected. <laughs> all right, guys, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend. Uh, really fascinating stuff here from uh, Bobby. So make sure to share it all over social media. Uh, send it emails, texts. I read your same podcasts nowadays. We'll catch you guys on next week's episode. Go, 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 go.